Today our journey through the Bible brings us to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And um, there's really uh, no better place for us to land on Veterans Day. And let me tell you a story to help you understand why. Uh, the beloved actor, uh, Jimmy Stewart, who you know from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, was a veteran who enlisted in the Army Air Corps during World War II. And as Jimmy prepared to go overseas, um, he, uh, go back one there for me, Hayden. As Jimmy prepared to go overseas, his father, Alex, who had served in the Spanish-American War, uh, that he's, he's pictured there to, his, to the right, uh, he had great big tears well up in his eyes. As, and, it was, and he was unable to speak as he prepared to say goodbye to his son. Knowing that this would probably be the case, he wrote his thoughts down in a short letter. My dear Jim boy, soon after you read this letter, you will be on your way to the worst sort of danger. Jim, I'm banking on the enclosed copy of the 91st Psalm. The thing that takes place, the thing that takes the place of fear and worry is the promise of these words. I am staking my faith on these words, and I feel sure that God will lead you through this mad experience. I can say no more. I only continue to pray. Goodbye, my dear. God bless you and keep you. I love you more than I can tell you, Dad. Jimmy Stewart returned home a decorated war hero, unharmed though his record included over 20 combat missions. During the height of the battle, Stewart said that he learned to lean on those words that his father had given him, Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, which says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And upon returning home, he told his father, What a promise for an airman. What Jimmy Stewart is articulating is exactly what we are going to see in the book of Philippians. That the promises of God fuel faithfulness in the face of emotions that would lead us to disobedience. Let me say that again because I think it's important for us to understand all the dynamics at work there. The promises of God, this is what Philippians is going to show us, that the promises of God fuel obedience in the face of emotions that would lead us to disobedience. So every day you're faced with an opportunity really a multitude of opportunities to obey God or to disobey God. And if we're honest with ourselves and recognize our own brokenness in this place, and we would, we would say that we face many, many, many emotions that will lead us and press us towards disobedience. And, 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 and as, much as, as much as we need to move away from being so driven emotionally, we are where we are and we've got to learn to grow through it. And so the promises of God, Paul wants to show us, the promises of God are going to fuel, this is what they do, they fuel uh, faithfulness in the face of emotions that would lead us to disobedience. You see, the Bible never promises that you will know everything or that you will have comfort or that you will experience, but, but instead the Bible does promise that you will experience fear and frustration and discouragement and hopelessness. And what you hear from the Bible is that as you do experience these emotions, that God's promises are there with you to give you a greater focus and fuel your obedience. And so let's dive in this morning to see this from Paul's letter. Let's first of all look at Philippians chapter 1 and see Paul's focus. Paul's focus. 
And Paul, as he comes to uh, Philippians chapter 1, as he writes this letter, he is overflowing with joy. Now let's get a little context to understand Paul's relationship here with the church. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. That he, um, he is... Uh, there and he has uh, has has been thinking about uh, people who could care for his need, and all of a sudden he gets a knock on the door one day from a guy named Epaphroditus. Now Epaphroditus was the leader of the church, one of the leaders there in the church at Philippi. Paul had established the church at Philippi in Acts chapter sixteen, verse nine and ten. Many of you know that story. Uh, Paul, it says that they were forbidden. This is I, lo- I love how Paul, or I mean how Luke describes. The relationship that Paul had with the Holy Spirit. This is an incredible thing. It says that the Holy Spirit forbid them to go to a certain place. And as they, they said, okay, well, we're not supposed to go there. We're not supposed to go, the, go there because the Holy Spirit said, no, we need to wait. And as they waited, Paul had a vision. He had a dream one night of somebody standing and calling to them from Macedonia. And so they go towards Macedonia and they uh, meet a, a, a lady named Lydia and they share the gospel with her, and she's the first convert there. And they establish in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, the first church in Europe. This was the first church that Paul established in Europe. And so Paul goes and, um, and he uh, eventually, uh, he spends some time there, and he gets to know the people of Philippi. The people of Philippi, and this is another reason it's kind of funny we celebrate this on Veterans Day, or we look through this at Veterans Day. Philippi was known, get this, for its patriotic nationalism. It was, it was, it was a, kind of a retirement place of a large number of soldiers. They would go through the Praetorian Guard, and then they would retire to Philippi, which is probably why uh, Paul is so eager to share with them in chapter 1 that as he's been in chains, he shared the gospel with all of the Imperial Guard, the Praetorian Guard there in Rome. It's very interesting. And so Philippi uh, had, had, had seen immense church growth, even though they were a church filled with poor former slaves or current slaves and former military uh, people. And so about 10 years passes by and Paul has been put in jail and he is in Rome under house arrest and one of the Philippian leaders knocks on his door one day and it's Epaphroditus, one of the leaders of the church there. And he came with a report about how the church was doing and about and with a gift for Paul. And Paul joyfully receives his gift. So just imagine... Um, uh, have you ever had that happen to you where, where maybe you're at home, uh, you're, you're feeling bad, but you're not going to call anybody, uh, and you get a knock, a random knock on the door, right? Imagine if that person, not only did they have, uh, you know, just being there personally, but imagine that they brought your favorite meal, right? And how thankful, how excited, how joyful you would be to know that not only had they thought about you, but they went out of their way and thinking about you to bless you and arrive at your doorstep so that they could enjoy that blessing and celebrate with you together. I mean, that would, that would take you from having a bad day to a really good day, right? That's kind of what Paul has experienced here. And as we come into Philippians chapter one, we just get this tone of joy. I mean, verse three is one of these that we all write on cards But now you understand why Paul said, I thank my God in every remembrance of you. He's saying that he's saying that as I've been sitting here and I've been hearing about Epaphroditus, I think about all those times that as I was down in the dumps or as I was discouraged about the work going on, that I thought about what God did among you while I was there with you. 
And I've thought about over the last 10 years about how the church has grown and about how the Lord has used you mightily there in your area. And I'm so thankful for you. And I'm thankful for this gift that you've sent me and for your partnership in the gospel. And I know that if God has started this work in you, I want you to know that he will finish this work in you. I want you to be encouraged by that until this work is finished. And so as Paul masterfully crafts his encouragement to them, The center of the universe in the book of Philippians is the poem about Christ in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Every other section of the letter orbits around that poem. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, just kind of maybe, I don't know if you underline or if you put brackets or whatever, but but, but put, put that this is the most important part of Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And as we go forward in this letter, we're going to see how all that Paul says reflects back on the truth about Jesus from this passage. And in fact, let me read 2, 5 through 11, just so that we can get it in our minds before we go through this letter. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul is telling them, that he, as he begins, he's telling them that he is thankful for them. He's thankful for their gifts. He's thankful for their partnership. And he prays that their love would grow so that they can continue to overflow that love into, into the people that are around them. And he goes on to say that things in Rome or things in his ministry since he left them have not worked out the way that he thought he would. Think back to the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome that we studied a few weeks ago. Remember, Paul's desire was to go to the end of the known world at that time, which was Spain. And he saw Rome as a really critical jumping off point to get to Spain. But he recognized that the the ground was eroding underneath his feet. That all these years he'd been preaching and teaching the gospel and he'd gotten beaten up and he'd gotten... Uh, you know, beaten to the point of death. He'd been in all kinds of, had all kinds of struggles and all those kinds of things that had happened to him. But he recognized that, that something bigger was coming. And indeed it did. And Rome, uh, I mean, uh, Paul was placed uh, under arrest and he, he appealed to Caesar and he was ultimately headed towards Rome uh, in order to have a trial before Caesar since he was a Roman citizen. And so think about it. And, and this is so the way God works. I hope, you, I, hope you, I hope you'll grasp this for a moment. Paul had in, it, in his mind this, that he would continue doing what he was doing, and he might face some persecution and trials, but ultimately he was going to get to Rome, and he was going to get to Spain, and he was going to take the gospel all the way there. And that was just, he knew that was his mission. But over here, behind the scenes, God's planning, well, Paul, I really want you to complete that mission too. I know I've called you to do that. <laughs> But the way that you think you're going to get there now is not the way that you're going to get there. You think that you're going to just go and load up on a ship with Luke and some of your buddies, and you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. But I'm actually going to send you to Rome in chains. And if he'd had this conversation with Paul, just, just like so often in the critical points in your life, if God had had the conversation with you before you ever went through him, you'd have been like, uh, can we not do that? 
I'm not really down with the whole being, you know, uh, chained to another person uh, 24 hours a day with this little 18-inch chain and, and like basically a, a mutual handcuff. I'm not. I'm, I would rather not, God, if that's okay. But as God did doesn't do with us, God did with Paul. He didn't ask our ask his opinion, right? <laughs> he just said he, he just he just allowed Paul to get arrested. Well, what Paul says at the end of chapter one is that actually not only have I made it to Rome. But now I've got a captive audience. I'm handcuffed to them. Think about it. They can't do anything to me. I'm under house arrest. I'm handcuffed to this guard. I'm able to meet with people. And as I'm sharing the gospel with them, as I'm teaching them about the, 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 the grace that is found in Christ alone, these Roman guards are hearing it and they're professing Christ. And as I travel, I don't have to worry about the Jews because I've got an armed guard. Isn't God awesome? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you guys don't get it. When, when God, God has taken me through this trial, God totally blew up my plans. But in blowing up my plans, his plans were made perfect. And it's a lot better than I ever imagined. And in fact, all of these people who never would have heard the gospel, I would have never had an audience with them. Now I have an audience with them. And they're hearing about Jesus. And they're trusting Jesus. And this is a big deal. And, and uh, if, we, if we had an in-depth study, we'd go into how this imperial guard, you, know, you, want, to, you want to know what these retired uh, Praetorian guards were known as, the group of them? They were known as the kingmakers. Because these were the guys that when they had a void of leadership at the head of the Roman Empire, they would look to these guys to give approval to the next leader. And so it's no surprise that what, what happened uh, just a few centuries later, not even a few centuries, what happened after the gospel spreads to Rome and Paul sees all of these Praetorian guards converted. The, the, the Roman Empire comes under submission to the Lord Jesus and becomes the official religion. And granted, that had some negative connotations as well. But how did that happen? It happened in a number of ways, but part of it was that God sent Paul to Rome in chains. And so don't you think for a moment that the discomfort that you're experiencing in your life and your life might not be to get you from where you want to be to where God has called you to be, and the path that you've carved out to get you from one point to the another won't really get you there. But the path God carves out, nothing can stop you from getting there. You hear that? That's something we're celebrating today, and that's what Paul tells them at the end of chapter 1. And he says, I want to keep on going preaching the gospel as long as I've got life. And that's where that, um, where that, uh, that, that heart cry comes from in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What he's saying is, he's saying, if I'm alive, if I'm alive, it's for your benefit. Because I would much rather go and be with Jesus, just like we sang I mean, as we're singing, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I'm sitting here thinking, I wouldn't mind if that was today, honestly. As we sing this song and as, as we think about what heaven's going to be like, I, I really wouldn't mind going to heaven today, but that's in God's hands. And if God chooses to give me life today, then that's for your benefit. First Baptist Abbeville, if God continues to sustain my life, that's for your benefit. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Philippian church, if God continues to sustain my life, that's for your benefit. But I'd much rather go and be with him in heaven. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But as long as I'm alive, I'm going to continue to preach the good news. 
I'm going to continue to write, to pray, to encourage churches just like yours. And so he admonishes them. He says, he says I want to admonish you about your continued unity in the faith. Continue to be unified, continue to grow, continue to serve one another in Christ's love. And look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. It sounds very similar to what we studied last week in Ephesians, right? Paul's recommendation or, or, or command for them to be unified with one another, it, it does great disservice to the testimony of Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ when God's people are without unity. Unity is critical, and Paul knows that. And so he says, I want you to be unified. Maybe there was some division there like there was in other churches. He doesn't mention it specifically. He, t- he does say there were false teachers. But he says, I want you to be unified. And if you're going to be unified... If you want to find unity, then that unity will abound only when it is rooted in Christ alone. And that's where Philippians 2, 5 through 11 comes from. He's saying, I want to show you the foundation of your unity. And so let's look at this passage because this is so significant. Verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. You just have to lay claim to it by faith. And it says, Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, let's stop there. The first thing he's saying is, he's saying, think about who Jesus was and is. He's God. He had every right to be worshipped, to be exalted, but he laid down those rights to serve us, didn't he? Jesus came in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and he had every right to stand in authority and say, Worship me, bow down, declare my name. He had every right to be adored and exalted, but he didn't. He didn't demand that. He served us and he humbled himself. And his service to us held back nothing, costing him his very life. And so if Jesus, the only one who is truly worthy of all these things, if Jesus took this attitude and this course of action, then how much more should we? I mean, do we really think that we are higher than Jesus? If Jesus came and acted this way, if Jesus came with this attitude and this conviction and this driving principle, then what gives you the right to look at God every day and say, well, I deserve this and I deserve this and I deserve this and I deserve this and I'm going to live this way because I want to. Listen, folks, that is satanic. That kind of self-centeredness and pride is so, it's so polar opposite of what we see in Jesus that it should have no place among us. And that's what Paul's telling them. If you want unity, then each of you, each of you, you must be ready to lay it all down. Every bit of it. Lay down every bit of your pride. Lay down every bit of your self-interest. You, be, you must be ready to lay it down for the good of the people around you so that you can benefit them, so that you can serve them, so that you can love them. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted, Jesus said. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And this is the way it is in God's upside-down kingdom, that Jesus chose to serve and God exalted him to the highest place. Look at verse 9. 
He says, therefore God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So look at what happens. Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him, so that of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Can we really manufacture a better path than the one Jesus laid down with his very life? To humble ourselves, to serve, to love sacrificially and let God look after us. Let the results be up to him. Based on what he did for Jesus who walked this path, then God is faithful to take care of you as you follow that same path. Do you see that today? That's what Paul is telling the Philippians. That's exactly what Paul is telling First Baptist Church Abbeville here November 11, 2018. You can't manufacture a better message. You can't, you can't come up with a better way to live than the way that Jesus lived. You can't, you can't hope for a way to fulfill the Great Commission other than the way Jesus fulfilled the Great Commission. You can't manufacture your own formula for unity, for how to do a Sunday school class, for how to live in, in community with other believers. You can't think of a better way, so embrace Christ's way. That's what he's saying. And Paul says in verse 12, as I've seen you obey in my presence, I hope that you'll obey in my absence because this is what God is trying to do in you. He is working in you to make you look like Jesus. And if you want a good example of this, Philippians, look at Epaphroditus. That's the end of chapter 2. Epaphroditus, apparently the Philippians collected a gift, kind of like a love offering, kind of what we take up from time to time. But the problem was Philippi and Rome were a great distance apart, so they needed somebody to take the gift. They needed an ambassador. Well, Epaphroditus had proved himself worthy. He was a good, uh, a faithful servant in the church. And so they gave him this financial gift. And Epaphroditus took off for Rome. But the problem was, the problem was, was that Epaphroditus got sick along the way. And not just like, you know, sniffle, sniffle sick, like on the verge of death sick. And yet, he got better. And he finished his journey to Rome. He could have turned back. He could have said, hey, I'm sick, guys. Uh, The local CVS ran out of NyQuil. I I can't sleep at night. You know, the family practice isn't open. I can't can't get the meds I need. Um, You know, my car broke down or my horse broke down or whatever. You know, whatever it was, I can't make it. Epaphroditus embodied this, I will find a way to complete your service to Paul. I will find a way through all of my strength to serve Paul, church, like you wanted me to serve him. And Paul says, for that reason, he and Timothy, these men like him, he is worthy of honor. Look at verse 30 of chapter 2. For he nearly died in the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. But Paul doesn't just finish with Epaphroditus' example. Paul says, look at my own example. My own example. In chapter 3, he tells them, he says, I want you to rejoice, brothers. I want you to rejoice. But verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Now, you need to know that uh, Paul is name-calling here. That's very interesting, right? Because we make Jesus out to be a hippie sometimes. And, you know, and we make these men of the New Testament to be, you know, they're just precious little lambs, right? Paul, Paul gets down and dirty here. And I, I don't, the Spirit inspired him to say this. I'm not saying this is what you should do. Kids, you, you really shouldn't call names, but that's what Paul does. And he says other things in, in Galatians and, 
And, uh, but, but Paul's saying, look out for these guys. They're dogs. They're false teachers. And all they want to do is bark to you this false doctrine. And they want to get your attention because that's what happened. Every time Paul would go preach, these false teachers would just come in behind him and would, be, would begin declaring these deceptions. And they would, they would cast stones at Paul's character. They would remind the church at Philippi, well, how are you going to follow Paul? Don't you know that he was there when Stephen was killed? Don't you know that Paul was a persecutor of the church? That he gloried in being a, a Pharisee? And Paul says, you know what, they're right. They're right. They're right that I was zealous for the law. But look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Following, following Christ's example, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, whatever status I had, whatever, uh, whatever privilege I had because of all that I had gained as a Jew, I lay it down. I count it as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What, what word does your Bible have where it says rubbish there? Dung? Yeah, there you go. What, what, what translation do you have? King James. There you go. King James. He wasn't afraid to say it. That's the actual word. Poop. Right? If we're looking at the emoji Bible, you all know it would be there, right? It'd be the, the, the little poop emoji, right? That, that's what he's saying. As, as horrible as that may be, that's what he's saying. He's saying, all those things that I gained, I'll lay them down just like Christ laid them down because that's not where I find my identity. That's not the fuel for my service. That's not is what's going to make me be obedient when I want to be disobedient in the face of all these emotions that I'm facing about being in prison. He's saying, I'll lay them down. And he does all of this in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death into the resurrection. And this is what our call is as well. At the end of chapter 3, Paul says in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Do like I'm doing, even in the face of those who work against us, even in the face of those who abandon us. Remember, what you fix your mind on is what direction you will go. What you fix your mind on is the direction that you will go. So will you fix your mind on the truth about Jesus because only those truths will nurture hope and faith-filled obedience as we surrender him and follow him. In chapter 4, he says, so celebrate or rejoice. You see, the Philippian church have been a great joy to Paul. They've caused him to rejoice in his chains. When the circumstances surrounding uh, Paul's life demanded that he sulk in suffering, the truth about Christ's service and the Philippians fleshing out that truth and their gift had caused him to rejoice. And this is God's will for them too. In chapter 4, he tells them, he says, he says, I know you're, he kind of implied here, I know you're in poverty, I know you're in distressful circumstances, I know you're emotionally taxed right now, I know you're being pressed on all sides, and you've got false teachers around you, you've got unjust masters who are trying to control your time and your schedule and your allegiances, but I want to tell you, Verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. What does your Bible say? Always. Does King James say always? All right, good. So King James says always. Everybody's translation says always. Guess what always means? It means all the time. It means in every situation. And he says, he says it's so important. I want to let you know rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Just like you can't come up with a better path to serve and to grow and to love than the path that Jesus laid with his own life, 
You can't do it in a way that Jesus did it unless you determine to have joy. And instead of looking at all the things that are going wrong, instead of looking at all the negative emotions, instead of looking at all the things that, that you are seeing around you that say you should sulk and that you should be down in the dumps, I tell you, you should fix your eyes on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Remember that from Colossians chapter 3 last week? Fix your minds on things that are above. Rejoice. And the only place that you're going to find unceasing joy is not on this earth. It is in heaven. You will find it like Paul found it in the Philippians. You'll find it in some good things that are happening. But if you can't find it in anything around you, look up. Look up. Love Lauren Daigle's new album. If you haven't heard it, the title track off there, look up, child. I mean, that's, the whole, that's the whole point of that. Look up. If you, if you can't see any place to look that gives you hope on this earth, which that will be the case many times, then fix your mind on the promises of Almighty God. Rejoice at what God has done in Christ. Rejoice at what God has done in you. Rejoice that you have been used, Paul says, You've been used to minister to me because that's the secret to living with joy. It's another one of those, one of those verses that we write on cards, but we may not understand the context of what it means. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians chapter 4, he's saying that I can face anything with Jesus. That's what he's saying. This verse does not mean that whatever I want to do, that Jesus will give me strength. God's not a divine vending machine. We don't put in some prayers and get out strength to do our agenda. That's not what it's about. This means that whatever comes into my life, even suffering at the hands of unjust men, just like Jesus did, that God has already provided for that in Christ. I can endure in Him. I can rejoice in the face of it in Him. I can trust that He is using it to grow me and advance His kingdom and that His reward for me will be found in His presence alone. So what is the key to facing any circumstance with joy as a Christian? By looking at what Christ has done. Because in Christ, God has provided for my endurance, God has provided for my joy, and God is using me to provide for others. Even as we celebrate Veterans Day today, what are we celebrating? We're, we're celebrating that even when they, these, these veterans, these soldiers didn't know the Lord, that God was still using them. God uses means, my friends. We can't just see a, a, a goal out there that God says in his word that he wants to complete and not understand that he's calling us to be the ones that he uses to complete it. And so when the Philippian church heard, hey, Paul's in need, they didn't say, well, I sure will be praying for somebody to give. They didn't hear that. They said, we need to give. When we say, hey folks, we need to make disciples in Abbeville. There are people out here who need Jesus. We need, to, we need to help them understand. Then the right heart of a believer says, then God wants to use me. So where's my people? Where, where, where are my neighbors? Where are the people that I'm supposed to love? And you go there and you obey. When we hear the call to pray, we're coming up on a time of prayer for international missions as we, as we get into Lottie Moon season. There's a week devoted to prayer. When we see those weeks devoted to prayer, what do we do? Do we actually pray? I mean, what other means could there be? Well, I'm going to pray about praying. No, that doesn't work. I'm going to think about praying. I'm going to talk about praying. No, what do we do? We pray, right? We give, we pray, we share the gospel, we endure, we rejoice 
We overflow with gratitude. We give respect and honor where respect and honor are due. We seek for unity because wherever God calls, we say he equips, right? But hear me, hear me. God will not equip you if you are not following his will. If you, have, if, if you wonder why, you're, why your life is so sapped of spiritual strength, maybe it's because you're not going the direction that God's going. That could be a reality. Maybe you need to take a couple steps back and just hit your knees and go into the presence of the Lord and say, where did I go wrong? And then obey in the last place that you heard his voice. You see, God's power is at work in us through his promises to make us live out the example of Jesus. That's what this whole New Testament's been about, friends. That's what this whole journey through God's word has been about. When Jesus came on the scene, it changed everything. When Jesus sent his spirit to the church, it changed everything. You cannot manufacture a Christian life 2.0. Jesus has already laid the foundation for you to walk on it. And so we're just called to walk on it today. These truths of the gospel that Paul exposes in Philippians provide the kind of motivation we need to do just that. But if I'll be honest, if I, when I look at myself and when I look at us as the American church, we are a fickle bunch of folks. We are quick to forget. We are quick to give up on what God has called us to do and to be. But as we saw last week in Ephesians 6, it is God's will for us that we stand firm. It's God's will for us to respond. And so you just have to ask yourself the question, is that what I really want to do? Do I want to look at my life through the lens of the gospel or do I want to try to create my own path? Lay my own foundation to walk on. You could try, but it won't be better than the one that Jesus laid for you. You see, God's will is for you to determine to live out Christ's example before people that don't really care to see it and won't really honor you for it. I have to, I have to imagine the disdain for soldiers who fought the Vietnam War that as they came back, and they're greeted in the airport, and they're called baby killers. They're slandered by the, by, the, by the very people that they had fought for. And I know there's all kinds of political dynamics, but I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of that, that young man walking through the airport or walking through his hometown and hearing those names thrown at them. I, I can't imagine. Do you know what I've done for you? Do you know what I saw for you? Do you know what I endured for you? Do you know how many friends I lost for you? You see... In, in a lot of ways, because Jesus said a servant is not above his master. When you really try to live and walk the Christ life, people won't appreciate it. They may not honor you for it, but that's where the question of motivation comes into play. Who are you doing it for? You see, people are unreasonable. They're illogical and self-centered, but we're called to love them anyway. People will accuse you of having selfish ulterior motives when you're kind, but be kind anyway. The good that you do today, guess what? It's probably going to be forgotten tomorrow, but be good anyway. Honesty and frankness in the local church will make you vulnerable. And people could expose you and, and, and use that vulnerability against you, but be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight but build anyway. People that need help from you may turn on you. People that you poured your life into may wane in their gratitude towards you, but help them anyway and serve them sacrificially anyway. Because in the final analysis, it was never between them and you. 
It was between you and God. The difference between success and failure, my friends, is not rooted in effort. It's rooted in focus. Will you fix your eyes on the promises of God and be filled with faith and walk forward in obedience even when you don't feel like it? Or will you just look at what is going on around you and shrink back in fear? My prayer is that we would be the kind of people who respond to these kinds of things with faith. And when we see God say verbs that we're supposed to do, endure, pray, give, share, grow, that we will walk forward with the promises of God filling our hearts and our minds. Let's pray together.